Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 165, Alexander Pushkin, Part 2. Last time, we covered the early years of the great Russian poet Alexander Pushkin, from his days with his nanny and servant, to his years at the Lycee at Tsarskoy Selo. Now we find him still in St. Petersburg at his new job at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. To say that Pushkin was a slacker at his job is kind of an understatement. His occupation really was poet, regardless of what the government position he held. Writing was his life, except the part where debauchery took over. A rake, a scoundrel, a womanizer, any of these terms can be used to describe Alexander Pushkin. The age, marital class, or place in society of the women didn't seem to matter. His friends constantly chided him about his behavior, but that didn't stop him from carousing around. Alexander Turgenev, a friend of his, wrote the following about him, quote, I scold that cricket, Pushkin, every day for his laziness and failure to improve himself. Add to that his taste for vulgar light loves and his no less vulgar 18th century liberalism. What nourishment for a poet is there in that? He further wrote, quote, Idleness, laziness, those terrible murderers of all beauty and talent hover over Pushkin. Every morning, Pushkin informs Joukovsky that he hasn't slept all night. He spends his time at brothels or else visiting Princess Golitsina and me, and at night he plays cards. Another letter from Turgenev states, Pushkin is very ill. He took cold while standing in the doorway of the house of a whore who would not let him in, in spite of the rain, for fear of giving him her malady. What a conflict between nobleness, love, and debauchery. Because of this behavior, venereal disease followed Pushkin in his youth. But it was a serious case of gangrene that almost took his life in 1818. Only quick thinking by a Dr. Layton saved his life when he plunged Alexander into a tub of ice. Beginning around this time of his life, until its abrupt end at age 37, Pushkin seemed to insult or be insulted by people around St. Petersburg all the time. Because of it, he had numerous duels to settle the offended party's honor. As Mademoiselle Karamazina wrote in 1820, quote, Pushkin has a duel a day. Thank heaven they are not mortal, and the adversaries come back from them unhurt. Another side of Alexander was his liberalism. One has to remember that this time period of Russia was a time of upheaval post the Napoleonic invasion. Men, in particular officers of the army, had returned from Western Europe having seen the much more tolerant societies they had marched through. They then came home to an autocratic regime where any talk of reforms of government and society were squashed by the Tsar's ministers. Tsar Alexander I, though, was in his liberal period, and there seemed to be a loosening of the rules, but outright criticism of the Tsar was not tolerated. Even though Mikhail Speransky had advised Alexander I for a number of years and had tried to institute a series of reforms, he was ousted from power in 1812, and the Tsar began to turn to the right. This change eventually led to the Decemberist Revolt in 1825, which we'll talk about later, followed by Tsar Nicholas I's ultra-conservative reign. Pushkin constantly pushed the envelope, circulating poems and verse highly critical of the Tsar and Russian society as a whole. 
This made him, of course, many enemies, one of whom, Count Fyodor Tolstoy, first cousin of the father of Leo Tolstoy, Nicholas, was to pass a rumor around St. Petersburg that Pushkin had been arrested and beaten at a secret location by Alexander and the Tsar's police. Of course, this was false, but it made it hard on Pushkin as others in society began to shun him, lest they be arrested and tortured. But what did really happen was military governor general of St. Petersburg, Miloradovich, was ordered to arrest the young poet. Instead, he tried to confiscate all of his writings through a ruse which Pushkin found out about, which caused him to burn all of his papers. Summoned to Milorovich's office, he told the governor general of what he did and pointed to his head, and he told him where all of the writing was residing. He then proceeded to write them all down in front of him and presented them. The man was so impressed that he decided not to arrest Pushkin. A few months later, though, it was decided that Alexander had to leave St. Petersburg, and the choices were an exile to Siberia, a monastery near the White Sea, or be sent on a trip through Russia, subsidized by the government. The latter was chosen, luckily, for Pushkin. In 1820, he set off for his trip, officially taken as state business. He arrived first in Kiev on May 15th, where he met a friend, Nikolai Ryevsky, an officer of the Life Guards Hussars. Nikolai's father was a de decorated officer himself, having fought with Suvorov in the Turkish War of 1787-90 to and against Napoleon in 1805 and again in 1812. From there, Pushkin went to Ekaterinoslav, a city founded by Potemkin in 1778 in honor of Catherine the Great. It was to be a capital of new Russia, but fell into a state of decay after Potemkin and Catherine died. Setting off from there, he headed to the Caucasus, along with Nikolai, and later his brother, Alexander. Pushkin found the area amazing, just as Leo Tolstoy did, years later. As he writes, quote, I regret, my friend, that you could not gaze with me on the splendid chain of mountains, on their icy summits, which from afar on a clear dawn seem like strange clouds, many-colored and motionless that you could not climb with me to the sharp peak of Beshtu, with its five hills, of Mashuk, of the Zhilezny, Kameni, and Zhmeni mountains. His time with Alexander Ryevsky was to influence Pushkin's further writings. He describes the young officer with a poem from the demon, which of course doesn't translate into English as well as it must sound in Russian, but here goes. His smile his wondrous gaze, his caustic speech poured cold poison into my soul. With inexhaustible slander, he tempted providence. He called the beautiful an illusion. He despised inspiration. He did not believe in love and freedom. Looked mockingly at life, and nothing in all of nature did he wish to bless. After their stay in the Caucasus, they headed towards the ancient town of Kerch. The town was founded by the Greeks in the 7th century BC, where it was known as the city Pantikepium. Later, it was the capital of Mithridates the Great's territory in southern Russia. They stayed a while, but it was not to be the final destination. That was to be the town of Kishinev. On the 21st of September, 1820, Alexander Pushkin arrived at Kishinev 
a town that he was to stay at for the next three years. Today, the town is the capital of the Republic of Moldova. While he stayed there, he yet again got into a number of duels as he was easily offended as well as easily offending others. Aside from the carousing, Pushkin did manage to write a few poems. They included The Black Shawl, A Beauty Who Took Snuff, Yanko the Shepherd, and one of his more famous pieces, The Prisoner of the Caucasus. Author T.J. Binion devotes an entire chapter on Pushkin's life in Kishinev, but I really found it to be somewhat boring, as it's just a repetition of the times in St. Petersburg. Get into lots of trouble, chase women, duel with their husbands, and oh, yeah, occasionally write a poem or two. After his stay in Kishinev, he moved on to Odessa, the Black Sea port city that was founded by a decree of the Empress Catherine the Great in 1794. In the 19th century, it was the fourth largest city in Imperial Russia behind Moscow, St. Petersburg, and Warsaw. It was here that Pushkin was to begin writing his seminal piece, Eugene Onegin. But a problem arose because of his other writings and behavior. The local governor, Count Vorontsov, was fed up with the young man and wrote to Tsar Alexander, asking him to be sent away. Foreign Minister Nesselrode interceded and wrote the following back to Vorontsov, quote, Count, I have submitted to the Emperor's consideration the letters which Your Excellency sent me concerning the Collegial Secretary Pushkin. His Majesty is in complete agreement with your proposal that he be removed from Odessa after considering those sound arguments on which you base your proposal, which are strengthened at the same time by other evidence received about this young man. He further went on to say, quote, In consequence, His Majesty, as a lawful punishment, has ordered me to exclude him from the list of officials of the foreign ministry for his bad conduct. Moreover, His Majesty does not wish to leave him completely without supervision, for that reason that, making use of his independent position, he will, without doubt, disseminate more and more widely those harmful ideas which he holds and will oblige the authorities to employ against him the most severe measures. In order as far as possible to avoid such consequences, the Emperor believes that in this case it is not possible to limit matters to his discharge alone, but finds it necessary to send him to his parents' estate in the Peskov province under the supervision of the local authorities. Essentially, Pushkin was sent into exile with his father and mother being his guards along with the local police. They made him sign a pledge that stated, quote, live permanently on his parents' estate, conduct himself in well-behaved fashion, not occupy himself with any indecent compositions or reprehensible opinions harmful to public life, and not disseminate such anywhere. So basically, Pushkin was under house arrest, with his father being his jailer. Now, as you imagine, this was not to go well. He already had a poor opinion of his parents from his childhood. Now, his father was to try to control his son like a child. The Pushkins resided in the town of Mikhailovskoy, in the Peskov district in the northwest of Russia. Going from the temperate wharf of the big city Odessa to the much colder and bleaker area was a bit of a shock for the young man. But for all the complaints, he did go into a frenzy of writing. 
The crowning achievement of this time of exile was the play Boris Godunov. It was written in 1825, published in 1831, but not approved for performance by the center for some time, by the censor rather, for some time. It is also the basis of the opera by Modest Mussorgsky in 1874. Pushkin was never to see the play performed as the first performance took place on the 17th of September, 1870 at the Marinsky Theater in St. Petersburg. Now, the first chapter of Eugene Onegin was published in 1824, but not without problems. The censors were all over Pushkin, and it was questionable whether the work would be published at all. Luckily for Alexander, Admiral Shishkov had replaced Prince Golitsyn at the Ministry of Education, which was responsible for censorship. Shishkov, although a conservative and not a friend of Pushkin's, went to bat for him, and the work made it through the censors. Another work produced during his exile was The Fountain of Bakshisari, which was a major hit. But a problem occurred, and this was the death of Tsar Alexander I in 1825. The author did not particularly like the Tsar, but the man to replace him and the events surrounding the ascension of the new ruler would lead to far greater difficulties for Pushkin, namely the ultra-conservative Tsar Nicholas I and the Decemberist Revolt. Now, this episode goes way back, so I'm going to give you a brief refresher on what's happened. Well, Alexander I supposedly died in Taganrog on November 19, 1825. His replacement was supposed to be the eldest son, Constantine, but he had already rescinded his rights in a secret letter written two years before. Nicholas, the next in line, did not want to be Tsar, but was eventually convinced to take the position a few weeks later. The general public, and in particular 3,000 officers of the military, did not know this, and thought that Nicholas had usurped Constantine and revolted on December 14, 1825. The revolt was mercilessly crushed with many of its members arrested. Pushkin personally knew many of the leaders. Some were very close to the author, like his best friend Pushkin, as well as Kukelbecker, Bestrzev, Trubetskoy, and Yakushkin, among others. This, of course, put Pushkin under even more scrutiny by the government. There was an arrest warrant put on Pushkin with a caveat that if the rumors of his being involved in the Decemberist movement proved to be false, the warrant would be lifted. In August 1826, a report was sent to the new Tsar, Nicholas I, that indeed the poet was not guilty. The Tsar then sent an order out that Pushkin was to be sent to him personally. On September 7, 1826, Alexander Pushkin made it to Moscow to meet the Tsar. He had not the time to clean himself up when he was presented to Nicholas. As the Tsar related a few years later of the meeting, quote, I first saw Pushkin after my coronation, when he was brought from his exile to me in Moscow, quite ill and covered with sores from a <clears throat> notorious disease. What would you have done if you had been in St. Petersburg on 14th December, I asked him, among other things. I would have been in the ranks of the rebels, he answered. When I then asked him whether his way of thought had changed, and would he give me his word to think and act in a different fashion, if I were to release him, 
He hesitated for a very long time, and only after a lengthy silence stretched out his hand to me with the promise to become different. After the hour-long meeting, which was only between the Tsar and the poet, Pushkin went to his uncle Vasily's home on Staraya Basmanya Street. That evening at a ball, Tsar proclaimed, quote, Do you know that today I have had a long conversation with the cleverest man in Russia? When he said that it was Pushkin, it shocked many in the room. Within minutes, that news spread throughout. Now, lest you think that this would have made it easier to publish his works now, that he had such a lofty praise heaped on him from the Tsar, think again. Instead, Nicholas took it upon himself to be the poet's personal censor. Now, the real reason for Nicholas's pardoning of Pushkin was likely to be to bolster the Tsar's public image, which was pretty low following the crushing of the Decemberist revolt. Pushkin was very well liked by the populace, especially high society. As Alexander von Beckendorf, the man who founded the Third Department, also known as the Russian Secret Police, wrote to Nicholas, quote, Pushkin is undoubtedly pretty much of a good-for-nothing. But if one is successful in directing his pen and words, then this will be advantageous. Even though his works and his behavior would be scrutinized, Pushkin felt free and more energetic than he had felt in years. He jumped back into high society, frequenting many a woman's parlor, many of whom were married, some to exiled members of the Decemberist revolt, which was noted by Beckendorf and his reports to the Tsar. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as we find Pushkin a wife and we tell the story of the last years of his time. I have a quick but important announcement to make. On my blog site, RussianRulersHistory.com, I've put up a library of recommended books on Russian history. It is linked to Amazon.com, so if you were inclined to purchase one of the books, it would help to support the podcast. I will be updating it regularly with editions of books I've used in my podcast in the past five years and the books that I'm currently using for the current podcast. So now, as always, Tasvidanya is Pasiba Bolshoya.